This is our tenth and last study in the book of Job, looking at the last two and a half chapters from chapter 40 verse 15 through to the end. Two and a half very surprising chapters. The book of Job ends with these two and a half chapters. The first because of its content, emphasizing what has gone before, and the second because it appears to stand the whole book on its head. Here is the first part of the first of these chapters, actually half the chapter before. It is about Beamoth, whose name means something like the beast of beasts. He is a terrifying creature, very like a hippopotamus, with some supernatural additions. I'm reading from chapter 40, verse 15. Look at Beamoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of its thighs are close-knit, its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The hills bring it their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plant it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes, or trap it, and pierce its nose? As if that is not enough, we now go on to read about the Leviathan. He is just as dangerous-sounding as Beamoth, very like a crocodile, again with some supernatural additions. This is chapter 41. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook, or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose, or pierce its jaws with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you, for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird? or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons, or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle, and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who, then, is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength, and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armour? Who dares open the doors of its mouth to 
ringed about with fearsome teeth. Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They're joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils, as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze, and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear, or the dart, or the javelin. Iron it treats like straw, and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Slingstones are like chaff to it. A club seems to it but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its undersides are jagged pots herds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron, and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal. A creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. We may well ask, what was that all about? There is no other biblical reference to Behemoth, and not many to Leviathan, though it is possible to see that this latter is a sea or water monster. Both are possibly linked in the culture and literature of that area in that time with gods, the god of death, the god of evil, or the Satan himself. Their dual role is strikingly similar to that of the dragon and the beast from the sea of the book of Revelation, the twin figures of evil. Both these have power, strength, and savagery far beyond human ability to match. Therefore, since they are the creation of the Lord, part of his world, and under his control, they set a marker for power, which the Lord stands far beyond. Also, particularly with Leviathan, who rules over the sea, which was the well-known symbol of the chaotic, they stand as markers of the chaotic nature of the Lord's world. Thus they reinforce the statement made in our last study, that this is an essentially chaotic world, and it is no good pretending otherwise, however difficult it may be to fit that into a scheme of theology and our understanding of the ways of the Lord. Now we come to the final words of Job in the first six verses of the last chapter. Here it is. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak, I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job has finally come to realization of what he has been doing wrong and how he can remedy that. He now realizes how high above him the Lord is, that all his attempted arguments against what has happened to him were a waste of breath. The Lord has a plan and a purpose for him, although he is unable to see what that is and how it will work out so that he could only see it as part of a chaotic world and accept that it is in the hand of the Lord. He is deeply sorry and upset by what he has done and said. So he repents, not of sins in the ordinary sense, but of his failure to acknowledge the place and power of the Lord in his life. The author of the book of Job has brought it to a point, a single climactic statement, in a way strikingly similar to the way John would do with his gospel many centuries later. John brings his book to the climax statement, My Lord and my God, by quoting the words of Thomas, obviously intending and hoping that his readers will make that same statement for themselves. Our author brings us to the statement of Job. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Also, obviously intending that we should echo that statement for ourselves. Job continued by quoting the words of Jesus. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And if our author had had access to those words, I think he too would have used them. We are not going to see the Lord, not likely to do so anyway in this life. We are not going to be able to understand all his ways any more than Job did. We are going to get confused by all we hear about him as Job did. But with the eyes of faith, we can see him. With the knowledge we do have, we can believe. And then we are blessed. His promise, not my assertion. A question. When did you start hearing about Jesus? When did you begin to see him? To see him properly? in the sense Job means. What was the trigger that changed you from hearing to seeing? Could you make that which was the trigger event for you into the trigger event for someone else? In verse 7, we leave behind the poetic dialogue that has constituted 
most of this amazing book. We are back into the simple prose of the first two chapters and this part chapter. The frame of the poetic stuff. Here it is. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer, and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters, and everyone who had known him before, came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter day of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Kerenhapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived a hundred and forty years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died an old man and full of years. The obvious first reaction is surprise. Job has been right all along, and his three friends have not. Elihu does not get a mention, a major reason for thinking the speech of Elihu was a late addition to the story. So Job, described as my servant, and thus equated with people like Moses and David, is to act as a priest for them. We must also note that if what these three guys said was all so wrong, how can we define the truthfulness of Scripture? Inerrancy. Suggesting nothing was in error does not seem to be the best word to use in spite of its popularity. And then we are told what Job's future was. What has all the argument been about if Job was headed to such a lovely future? But is it really such a wonderful future? He gets exactly the same size family as he had before, but the first family died, and their deaths will have left a scar that will never completely heal. 
People are people and cannot be substituted one for one just like that. Not even if his daughters are now so much more beautiful than the ones he had before and have such wonderful names. And all those animals, just twice as many of each variety as he had in the first place. Did that make life any easier? We can have no possible expectation of 6,000 camels, etc. But we know things Job did not know. When Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, it was only a hope. For us, it is a certainty. Because we live after Jesus, who died rose again and ascended into heaven to prepare a place for us, we have a much superior hope to that of poor old Job. We have been told by the writers of the Hebrews that we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. We have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Yikes! Wow! Hallelujah! And hooray! One final comment. This is a great book of the Bible perhaps unfairly neglected. That really means that I didn't know it very well at all until I started looking into it for these notes. Also, more than most of the scripture, it will mean different things to different people. I have attempted to chart one particular way through it, for my own good and hopefully yours as well. Don't let it stop there. Read it, think about it, Meditate on it for yourself and find your own way through this challenging and thrilling writing. May the Lord bless you in so doing. Goodbye.